Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Today, we're going to be going into the Salt and Light treasure chest and pulling out some of our favorite conversations of the spring of 2017. Today, we're going to be looking at the topic of pornography. We start by speaking with author Matt Frad, who tells us why those who think pornography is good are promoting a myth. And in our second half hour, blogger Jessica Harris speaks to us about women who struggle with pornography. We also have two artists today. We end the first half hour with cellist Dane Johansson, who took his cello on the Camino de Santiago. And we end the program by reconnecting with singer-songwriter Marie Miller, who has a new album, Lost at Sea. Remember to visit us at saltandlighttv.org radio and to comment on what you hear on this program or to ask any questions, look for me, Deacon Pedro, on Facebook or Twitter. We begin now with the porn myth. Did you know that there are 40 million adults in the United States who regularly visit pornographic websites? 25% of web searches on Google are for pornography. Every second, over $3,000 are spent on pornography. That's over $97 billion worldwide every year. $13 billion comes from the U.S. Did you know that there are 100,000 child porn websites worldwide and that child pornography generates $3 billion each year? There are 4.2 million pornography websites on the Internet, and every second, over 25,000 Internet users are viewing pornography. And 47% of Christians claim that pornography is a major problem in their home. Some may say that pornography is healthy and good, but my next guest wants to expose the myth that pornography is good, or at least not bad. In his new book, The Porn Myth, Author Matt Frad hopes to debunk most commonly held beliefs about pornography, and today he joins us here on the Salt and Light Hour. Matt Frad, welcome to the program. G'day. Thank you for having me on. Good. So um, let's cut to the chase. How would you define pornography? That's a great question. Uh, pornography, here's a, here's a rough kind of definition. I'd say it's material that depicts erotic behavior with the intention of sexually arousing. Okay. So that would include things like Fifty Shades of Stupid, Braille <laughs> pornography, audio pornography. Right, you know, right. Is, yeah, right, and I guess I guess that people who 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 maybe disagree with some some of the ideas that are in the book would say, well, how do you know people's intent when they're creating that? What I guess some people would even call right. It art, so maybe right? I could modify the definition therefore and say that uh, pornography is material that depicts erotic behavior that is either intended to sexually arouse or generally has that effect. Right, right. Now, what and so this, this is clearly different to naked art. No yes, one yes. gets caught masturbating in museums to statues no, or not. beautiful yes. paintings. They don't elicit that sort of... That sort of response, um, yeah. Uh, ...desire. Right. Now, so what do you say to people who would say that, what's the problem? Pornography is healthy and normal. What's the problem with pornography? Well, there's a number of problems with pornography. Whenever we consider the rightness or wrongness of a particular, say, action, in this right. instance, we might wish to focus solely on the consumption of pornography. Yeah. We can say why it's wrong in and of itself or why it's wrong because of its consequences. Yeah. And in this book, given that it's a non-religious response 
mm-hmm. pro-porn argument. Mm-hmm. I focus a great deal on why it's wrong because of its consequences. Right. So maybe we'll begin there. Yeah, so what are the effects? I think that pornography has a deleterious effect on the consumer, on the consumer's relationships, and on society at large. And I think that there's been a lot of evidence that's been coming out of academia over the last mm-hmm. 20, 30 years that, uh, that backs that up. Right. And that there isn't comparably good evidence to think otherwise. Right. Maybe, maybe. Um, of course, I want people to read the book, so I don't want to go through everything. But what are? Give me an example. Like, why would it be damaging to marriages, for example? Right. So uh, there's been a number of studies that have showed that even moderate pornography consumption of "quote unquote" vanilla porn—that mm-hmm. is to say, you know, nothing to what we might consider. Uh, aggressive uh, or perverted, just very simple pornography, perhaps a Playboy centerfold or something. This ha- there's been studies that have shown that this leads people to think less of their partner's physical affection, right. uh, physical appearance, and so forth. Uh, there's been other studies that have showed that those who use pornography regularly are more open to things like committing adultery. So I think, but I mean, I'm not even sure we need hard and fast evidence for this. It seems rather logically obvious to me. I mean, if I'm going to uh, watch other people engage in an act that ought to be held within marriage, um, then of then of course it's going to kind of compete right. for my attention, and I'm going to begin to think of these sorts of actions uh, to be to be okay and to be exciting and something that I might wish to partake in, uh, in, in a real sense other than just consuming it visually. Right, right. You also in the book uh, make a connection between pornography and sexual dysfunction. Right. What, what would so, be the connection? Yeah, there's been a lot of studies that have come out that have shown this. Uh, for example, Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler is the clinical urologist at Harvard Medical School. Mm-hmm. He kind of made this uh, popular, what he calls porn-induced erectile dysfunction. Hmm. That is when a man consumes pornography uh, and then discovers that he cannot achieve and maintain an erection with a real woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Norman Doidge, who wrote the book The Brain That Changes Itself, actually says this is less like erectile dysfunction and more like impotency because with erectile dysfunction, the problem has to do with blood flow, but with impotency, right. porn-induced impotency, the problem isn't below the belt, it's between the it's ears. It's in the brain, yes. Time magazine had a front cover article last year on the detrimental effects pornography has on its consumers, and they cited several studies mm-hmm. that talk about the, incredibly, uh, the incredible rate uh, in which we're seeing people uh, who consume pornography getting erectile dysfunction. Now, right. someone might say, well, couldn't it be that it's just due to anxiety or mm-hmm. something? Maybe there are other factors. But the problem with that is we have tens of thousands of testimonies online of men who say, look, I've tried to be with my girlfriend, okay, couldn't get an erection. I go back, I open up my computer, I can. Right. And you still might say, well, maybe it's anxiety. Well, no, hmm. because they can't get an erection without looking at pornography, even if they try to masturbate without it. Yeah. We're seeing similar dysfunction, sexual dysfunction in women who may be able to climax, but the climax isn't at all as strong or as powerful or as enjoyable uh, as it was or as it is when they quit porn. Right. Now, the book is called The Porn Myth, so of course you in it are debunking myths. Uh, 
I think you just helped us debunk two of them, but let's do a few more. Um, what are some of the myths, for example, people that say, well, I'm not hurting anyone? Right. Well, I mean, um, it's. I just don't think that's true. I think already we've shown that pornography hurts ourselves right. by perhaps leading to addiction, erectile dysfunction, relationship breakdown. I think those are a few ways in which pornography hurts us. Is there a myth? The other that... way it hurts people is those in the industry. Right, I was going to ask you. We tend to have this um, unrealistic view uh, and untrue view that those in the industry are just well-rounded individuals right. who find their work liberating. But uh, as I have a whole couple of chapters in the book that recounts the stories of men and women in the industry, very often that's far from the truth, that when a woman, for example, decides to become a pornography performer, it is perhaps her choice. Sometimes it isn't, but for the most part, let's say, perhaps it is her choice. But in a sense, it's actually because of her lack of choices right. that she ends up doing this. You right. know, no little girl grows up saying, that's what I want to do. And if they had another option, they'd likely choose it. Yes. And the stories of abuse that go on in the industry are rampant. And these yes. are the sorts of stories that come out when women end up quitting porn, like Pamela Anderson, of Jenna course. Jameson, Bella Knox, and so forth. Yeah. So yeah. I think this is a fantasy that we like to tell ourselves, because yeah. we would much rather not believe that we are uh, arousing ourselves mm -hmm. to images of women who may have experienced some great degree of trauma in their past or maybe experiencing it now. Right, right. Maybe even experience it in, in filming whatever you're watching. Now, the, another myth I would think is that some people might feel that there is no hope, that I'm, I'm addicted, I'm always going to be addicted to porn. Is there hope for people who are struggling with this? Yeah, there definitely is. I think we have to stop thinking of freedom from porn as a destination, uh, however, okay. and, and begin thinking of it as a daily choice that we make by our actions. Right. If we think of it as a destination, then, yeah, I mean, I don't know, when, when do you arrive at that point? How do you know you won't fall tomorrow or tonight? Right. You know, we never know these things. But very often people, Catholics, treat it like it is. They're, they'll say things like, you know, what's the book I need to read? What's huh. the prayer I must pray? Am I wearing the right colored scapula or something? Yeah. But uh, when we think of it rather as a daily choice that we make by our actions, I think this is a much more helpful way to view it. Uh, so I think if one is addicted to pornography, they should decide to quit. And then the three things we found most helpful mm -hmm. when overcoming pornography long-term, uh, those three things would be spiritual direction, therapy, mm -hmm. and finding a good 12-step group. Right. Uh, in our experience, those three things have brought about the most success. Right. Okay, that's good advice. Maybe good, good to leave it there. Um, thank you so much, Matt, for all the work that you do, and uh, in particular for this book. I, I found it very uh, easy to read and very insightful. So thanks for sharing it with us. Thanks. Matt Fratt is the Director of Content Development for Integrity Restored and best-selling author and popular speaker. He is also the co-creator of Victory, an app that provides a strategic battle plan for winning the struggle against pornography. His latest book, The Porn Myth, is published by Ignatius Press. You can learn all about it at thepornmyth.com. All royalties from The Porn Myth go to help Children of the Immaculate Heart, which is a not-for-profit a corporation out of San Diego, California, whose mission is to serve survivors of human trafficking.
Here now is our featured Artist of the Week, Dan Johansson, with part four, Saraband, from Bach's Suite Number no. 3 in C Major for cello from the soundtrack of Strangers on the Earth. That was Dane Johansson with a section of box suite number three in C major for cello. Um, that is from the soundtrack of the film Strangers on the Earth. Um, we might actually keep playing that track underneath because uh, it's so lovely. Um, the Camino de Santiago is probably the world's most popular pilgrimage. Every year, hundreds of thousands of people walk the route of St. James. One of these pilgrims was Dane Johansson. He's a cellist who walked the Camino with his instrument on his back, performing music for his fellow pilgrims along the way. Dane's journey is captured in the documentary film Strangers on the Earth. And to tell us all about it, I am now joined by Dane Johansson. Uh, Dane, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So, Dane, why did you want to walk the Camino? Well, it had been a... uh a project that I'd, I'd, I'd been kind of looking for a new way to approach box cello suites. Okay. And, you know, any cellist's life with these pieces is ongoing in a journey of sorts. Um, yeah. We start playing these pieces when we're very young, and, you know, I'll, I'll sur- I surely be uh, playing these pieces for the rest of my life. So um, it's a journey, and I had a composer friend who had taken his music on a journey. He, he's a... Uh, he, he walked 2,200 miles, I think, of the Appalachian Trail wow. and wrote 81 pieces for string quartet along the way. So uh-huh. in, the, in the summer of 2008, he was telling me about that adventure, and I got really excited about the idea and thought, wow, I could do something like that with the box cello suites and my cello, and, okay, but where so, would I do it? Yeah. You know? And so then I started looking for a venue, and I found the Camino de Santiago, and so it was a... It was sort of a process that evolved quite naturally. Interesting, um, yeah. I didn't end up walking until 2014, yeah. so I had a lot of time to plan and think about it. And um, But it kind of began in 2008 with the inspiration okay. from that. Friend. Yeah, it's interesting because I was going to ask you um, why the box suites, but obviously the whole journey begins for you with those box suites. Can you tell me a bit about those musical pieces? Well, as I said, they're very important um, elements of the of any cellist's repertoire yeah and they're pieces that i've played many times um and for you know for many years and um but i i i will say that my connection to those pieces is so much stronger now having had that experience along the camino performing them almost every night and sharing them with so many people and sort of you know as i walked thinking a lot about the music and reapproaching it every night and and just trying to do something different with the music each time that I played it really deepened my connection to many aspects of that music and, and certainly 
deepened my interpretation of that music. So yeah, it was a wonderful experience. What, what would you say? I'm, I'm I'm intrigued by the fact that you you. I mean, I would have thought that you picked the Camino because everybody knows the Camino. But did you? What was it about the Camino? And maybe now in retrospect, you you're able to talk about it better. But do you see? The, a relationship between that particular landscape or that weather or the you know what 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 made you pick that particular pilgrimage route as a venue as you call it for for these musical pieces right well there was it, there were many reasons um but probably the most obvious reason was that um as you said hundreds of thousands of people walk the camino every year and my goal as a as an interpretive musician was to share music with people. So right. finding a populated route was really important to me. I see. Um, it wouldn't have been much of a, a, uh, a success at all, I think, if I'd walked the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> By yourself, know, yeah. Half That's a dozen right. people along the way. So that was that was one reason. And then another, another was, you know, that kind of developed as I thought more about it, um, is sort of the timelessness of both Bach's music. I mean, this, these are pieces that were written... 300 years ago yeah and they're still i think very powerful and relevant pieces of music for people today uh -huh. um and there aren't too many um there aren't too many great works of art that are so well known mm -hmm. that are so old yeah right so or at least they 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 belong in very very good company very select company right so and the camino de santiago is similar in that it's this route that's been um Yeah, revisited and revisited by so many people over hundreds of years, yes. and there's there's this this idea that um, this route and this journey, I think, can can very easily be linked to this music that keeps being experienced over and over and over again mm -hmm. by so many individuals who each connect with it in their own way. No. and yeah, so I think the two are actually very. You know, they go quite well together. Yeah. They, and then the third reason that I okay. really like the box suites along the Camino de Santiago is that I got to play in 36 beautiful I was ancient gonna, churches. I was going to ask And they were all that. so different from one yeah. another. I was going to ask you about so that. that really... Yeah, because when I first heard about this project, I thought, well, cool, like he would like walk and, and, and just sit down somewhere and play his cello. But you actually had, uh, I presume, organized concerts throughout in churches along the way, right? That's how it worked. Well, so it began. It began as something more like what you imagined. It, yeah, that that was my idea. Really. And then I was actually just serendipitously getting to know a cellist in Spain because I thought, well, I'm going to be walking through his town. Maybe I can connect with some young cellists. Yeah. So I contacted this teacher, um, Diego Arbizu, at the um, conservatory in Pamplona. Pamplona. Yeah. And he, he, I told him about the project and my plan. He said, well wait, you know, you're not going to be able to just show up and play in these churches without permission. Okay. You have to get permission. Yeah. And sort of, you know, sort of, that was the first time that somebody actually brought a little reality into the, mm -hmm. you know, into my dream. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, um, and so then we, he, he was very generous. He and another woman from Spain, Irena Tosino, who was a, actually a friend of mine from New York, but she grew up in Spain. They helped me connect with all of these priests along the way and get permission to perform music in all of the churches. Mm -hmm. And um, the film kind of elaborates a little bit on the fact that it began as this idea to make a recording of the box suites in all these churches. Okay. And then in order to get permission to play in all of those places, I had to open 
um, opened things up to the communities, and 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 it became, as you said, a series of organized concerts along the way. Fascinating, none. I mean, but you still walk. How many? Uh, which route did you do? Did you do all four weeks or six hundred kilometers? I was there. I was walking for forty days. Okay. So, yeah. Um, and it was about five hundred eighty yeah. miles total. Nice. So uh, I yeah. walked from the the border between France and Spain yeah. and the Pyrenees to the Atlantic Ocean. To the to all the way to Finisterra. Did you, um, uh, I mean, obviously you had the, the cello with you. Our co-host, my, one of my co-hosts of the show, Emily, earlier in the program, she wanted to know, so like, where was his backpack? So just oh. practically, <laughs> did you have a cello and a backpack? Did you stuff all your like clothing in the cello case? How did you manage that? Or um, well, I... <laughs> So one of the themes that I was dealing with or really living with along the Camino was, you know, was the idea of simplicity because yeah. that really seemed to me to be the best way to approach um, that, that period of time is just to make it as simple as possible. So, because I, I, you know, just physically I couldn't carry very much more than the cello. Yes. So I didn't bring very many things with me. I had a change of clothes like one change of clothes. So, nice. you know, every couple of days I was doing laundry <laughs> and, um, that's it. I had yeah. a, a, a very basic sleeping roll and some personal items and some rain gear. Right. And that was pretty much it. Yeah. So I had, and I had all those things kind of strapped to the cello case and tucked inside and everything. So it was, it was pretty manageable. Yeah. Now, everybody I know that has done the Camino, I mean, they come back with lots of great stories. Is there one story of one person you must've met lots of people along the way, um, any, any, anything of that journey that really stands out that you can share with us? Well, you know, that's a, that's a really difficult question to answer because I have so many yes, memories I can imagine. of so many important people who were influential along the way, um, and really shaped my experience. I'll share with you one story that I think was kind of, um, a good representation of the way things seem to happen on the Camino. So, mm-hmm. What I kept finding was that if you just kind of brought your best self and your best um, flexibility to any situation, that things generally sort of worked out very well. Along, you know, and yeah. I, I think that's you know maybe that's just kind of more part of my outlook on life. But um, but one story really stands out to me um, related to that kind of idea, and it was that we you know we were recording in all these churches and and putting on community concerts in all these places. And and every priest along the way had already given permission. But after we had recorded and filmed in, in the location, we needed a, a signature on a release form, you know, from someone to, just so that we could, you know, cover ourselves later if there was any, somebody took issue with the material we were using in the film. Right. And so one guy decided that he was, going to kind of shake us down and said that we'd have to pay him to sign the paper. Really? And so we went to the bank and withdrew some money and we did, we were really operating on a few string rods. I mean, everybody had like 10 euros per day. Yeah. Period. And so, you know, we, we thought, okay, well, we'll do our, do what we can. So we went to the bank and withdrew some, some money and got back and he saw how much cash we had and doubled his asking price. Wow. And so we ended up giving the guy 200 euros for his signature and, um, you know, went on our way. Well, a few days later, we were in another town with another church and another priest, another community, and we had a really nice experience there. And on the way out of town the next morning, 
um, the priest was outside along the road, and he stopped me and, and gave me a, a card um, and thanked me for being there and thanked us for being there and, and for the experience. And so it was very nice. We parted ways. And later on down the road, I opened the card, and he tucked 200 euros inside. Nice. And it was just sort of this beautiful moment of, oh, well, every, you know, everything is kind of just keeps working out along this yeah. journey. And um, there's, there was, there, it seemed like everything kind of kept finding a nice balance. Yeah. So I don't know. Different people might interpret that story differently, but I, I, I yeah. really enjoyed that, that story. And I, I, I carry that memory for yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. I'm sure that and many, many, many more memories. Sounds like it was a wonderful experience. And, and it sounds like it's a wonderful film. I encourage people to look, look it up. Uh, thank you, Dane, for sharing a bit of, uh, a bit of that with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. Dane Johansson is a professional cellist who performs throughout the world as a soloist and also as a chamber musician. You can learn more about the film Strangers on the Earth and uh, where you can watch it at the film's website, S-O-T-E, so Strangers on the Earth, S-O-T-E-Film.com. I'm going to put that link on our site so that you can also uh, find it easily, S-O-T-E efilm.com Here now is another track from the soundtrack of the film. This one is the prelude of Bach's suite number 5 in C minor. Listening to Dane Johansson with a track from the film Strangers on the Earth, the prelude of Bach's Suite No. 5 in C minor. This is a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Check out our website at saltandlighttv.org slash radio. Hello and welcome to the Salt and Light Hour Part 2. I'm Deacon Pedro. 
A few weeks ago, we spoke with Matt Frad, who just published a book titled The Porn Myth. That was a very popular program, and we received questions about the issue of women and pornography, which we had touched briefly with Matt Frad, but not really in depth. And so we thought we would dedicate a bit more time to this topic. Joining us now is Jessica Harris, whose blog is titled Beggar's Daughter. In it, she writes about pornography, about sex, about singleness, sexual exploitation, and grace. Now, Jessica describes herself as a former porn addict, and she started the website beggarsdaughter.com to share her story and help women and girls know that they are not alone in their struggles. So I'm very happy to welcome Jessica to, to this program. Uh, Jessica, thank you for what you do um, and for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. So, um, a little curious, I mean, I just explained why you started the website, but you actually started writing a book. Tell me how that turned out into an actual website. Well, right. So, I had wanted to start the book originally. I wanted to do just the book. And for me, it was, um, I felt like God wanted me to share my story. And I thought, okay, I'll write a book, and then I can get that out there, and then I can go on with my life, because I had no interest, really, in being known as the girl who's the expert on this. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I thought, I'll write a book, and then I can go and do what I want. But it turns out that it's not quite that easy to get a book published. Right. So then I said, fine, I won't write a book. I will just do a website. I will just share my story on a website, and then I will go on with my life. Okay. Um, and then the website turned into a blog, and then the blog kind of turned into the Turned to the website. Now, and obviously you were wanting to write a book because there was a story there that you had to tell, your own story. Right, there's this, right, my story, and just the fact that no one really was talking about this issue of women's struggle with pornography. Yeah. And I really just felt like we needed to at least start having this conversation, and if I could somehow get my story into that and help start the conversation, then... I wanted to do that. Yeah, of course. Now, you say that you were exposed to pornography at age 13. Is that correct? Yes, I was exposed at 13 years old. And was that accidental? How did that happen? That was, I was researching for school. It was back in 1999, the age of dial-up internet. Yeah. But I was researching for school, and there was a, a website that was just full of videos, and they were completely innocent videos. They were educational, scientific videos, but in the middle of all those videos was a pornography video. Really? Um, so I clicked on that, yep, right there, and it took me to a hardcore pornography website. And so just like that, I was pulled into hardcore pornography. So, and your reaction, and I know this because I've, I mean, I've read your, what you've written, so your, your, your response to this was, you said that you were disgusted, but there was, I mean, you kept, you were curious, is that, so what happened next? Right. It, it's a little bit of maybe like watching a train wreck almost where you, you feel like I need to look away but at the same time you're like, but this is, what is this? Like I have to see what happens next or I have to see what's going on. Right. So I clicked on the video and clicked to go out of the video and it was one of those kinds of screens that just pulls you into the side. It was right. like a viral screen yeah. in a way and it just kind of sucked you into the site. And then the site was filled with with ads and with videos and all sorts of things all on the main page. And then there was a chat room there. So then it was kind of, oh, I'll just poke around and see what's here. Maybe not watch anything like that again, because that was kind of too much. But yeah. maybe this genre isn't as bad. Or here's a chat room. Let me go in there and see what's going on in there. Like, what is this world that I've just found? It was, it was a curiosity of, wow, what did I just 
what I just stumble upon. And at what point did it change from curiosity to something that was that you felt was just out of control? I noticed that it was out of control my senior year of high school when I I was I was a straight A student in high school. I had no problem getting good grades. Mm-hmm. But as a senior in high school, my grades actually started to be harder to keep. I was still getting the perfect scores, but they were a struggle and I realized that it's because I was spending hours watching pornography and so I thought oh well I'll just cut it back and when I tried to cut it back I couldn't and that's when I realized I am in trouble this is out of control I can't I can't stop so can I can I try to because I'm and I and this is part of the reason why we're having this conversation because I think I understand why men are stimulated visually by this but what was what was what was keeping you hours watching this stuff what were you looking for yeah, no, I think that the the men are visual thing. I I understand where that argument is coming from. Yeah. Um, but women are also we also have a visual aspect as well. Yes. So I think that um, our bodies also can be trained to respond to certain stimuli. So I right. think that over the years of exposure, I had almost conditioned Shape. my body to the point where this is this is how it works. And for me, it was an escape. It was how I coped with life. Right. It was. It was. That's what I did. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and yeah, yeah. Partly because you day. were exposed. Partly because you were exposed uh, so young that your, you know, your brain is still developing. Um, y- you also t- talk about the fact that you got to the point where you actually thought that the only future for you was to be an adult porn star or an adult Correct. entertainer. How I don't. Where's the connection there? How did you go from I struggle with this and it's a problem to this is what I want to do for a living or this is what I have to do for a living. Right. So senior in high school, I was, again, completely looking back, addicted to this, really struggling to find someone I could tell and find a place to find help. Couldn't find anybody or didn't feel safe anywhere. So I went off to college, Christian college, thinking, okay, I'll get caught here and they'll be able to help me. Mm -hmm. When I did get caught, Instead of helping me, they said, we know this wasn't you. Women just don't have this problem. Right. So for me, it made me step back and say, then what on earth am I? If women don't have this problem, what does that make me? And I wrestled with understanding my identity, understanding my sexuality, and in that realized that if I wanted to still be a woman Mm -hmm. and have this problem, that the only women in the world who I thought had enjoyed this for the women who were actually in it and I thought there's no way I can have the future I wanted, no way I can have Yeah. You know, the only way I can deal with this is just to join it. Right. Where does the term beggar's daughter come? Yeah, so beggar's daughter, when I was first getting ready to share my story, I wanted to, to find a blog name that was symbolic almost of that journey or of that struggle. Yeah. Um, I have a background in poetry. I've written poetry all my life. So symbolism is really huge for yes. me. So I wanted something that was symbolic. And a friend of mine wrote a poem about a beggar's daughter and how she was a beggar on the streets of London and dreamed about what it would be like to be free and to be in the castle and be a daughter of the king. And they people around her said to her, you know, you need to just need to stop dreaming. You were born a beggar. You will die a beggar. You will always be a beggar. Right. Just give up. Yeah. And she wouldn't. And so it was kind of, for me, it was symbolic of that journey of feeling like I'm stuck here. I would love to be out, but I can't get out. I'm stuck. And then just realizing like that there's hope there because we don't have to be. We don't have to live 
as beggars. You know, we can live as children of the king. So just finding that, trying to capture that journey really in a, yeah. in a name. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned Hope. I was going to ask you about that because we know, of mm-hmm. course, we know that you did find help and that you're now in a, in a better place. Um, in, in, in the course of all this, you've discovered that this is more common than we think, correct? So how, how big is this problem among women? I think that this problem is even bigger than, than maybe I suspect. When I walk into a place to speak, depending on the age of the audience, I assume at least 50% of the women in the wow. audience, Christian or not, and um, watch pornography, 50. Hmm. And in the culture, mainstream culture now, you're seeing where it's probably more than that, probably closer to 75 to 80, maybe 90% of women in mainstream culture, non-Christian, non-faith-based really? culture are watching pornography. But also as you go younger within Christian circles or within the church, you've got 100% of girls who are watching this. So this is this is bigger than we're, than we're understanding. Yeah, much bigger than the one in five that we were quoting uh, earlier. Um, so, uh, but there is hope. So uh, in the little time that we have left, you you are very big on letting people that they need to talk about this, that, you know, the evil one just wants to, to keep it quiet. So we need to talk about it. Where can people find help if they're struggling with this? Yeah, I think um, you know, silence just perpetuates shame, and then shame perpetuates silence, and it just isolates you. Yes. So really, I encourage um, young women, really, more and more as the, as the years go by, to even just tell a friend. You would be surprised how many girls come to me and say, I'm so afraid to tell anybody. And then when I said something, there were five of my friends that were the same way. Yeah. So really just finding a, a friend that you can, that you trust to at least open up that conversation. Because I think when you first have that moment where you tell somebody and in that moment they can exercise grace mm-hmm. and help you understand that, you know, this does not change who you are. This is not you you're not going to get labeled because of this, but that they're going to help you and they're going to work through this with you. Right. Once you can get through that first hurdle of of telling somebody, it's like the chains start to fall off, even just then, where it right. starts to lose its hold because you're not in silence anymore, and there's not the shame anymore. There's not that fear. Yeah. You've, you've broken through that. So just starting with your circle of friends, or you know, if you are close with your pastor's wife or close with somebody in your church, Telling them, or if you're at college, telling somebody on your dean staff. This mm-hmm. is this is prevalent enough that I think we're falling away from the idea that women don't do this anymore. Right. And um, this is prevalent enough that I think if a woman comes forward and says, "Hey, I have this problem," that someone's going to say, "We figured somebody here did," you know, and you'll be able to move forward with that. I think a lot of the shame and the stigma is breaking down now. So yeah. just telling somebody in your circle. Absolutely. That's good advice. And then I would add and go check out Jessica's website, beggarsdaughter.com, because there's uh, lots of information there and lots of stories and lots of good resources. Um, I wish we had more time, Jessica, but this is, uh, I think, an important topic. And maybe uh, as uh, we get responses, we can maybe revisit it at another time. So thank you for what you do and for not being afraid to tell your story. Thank you for having me on today. Jessica Harris is a blogger and author. You can find her writing uh, for many websites, and you, but you can purchase her book, Beggar's Daughter, and her other books, and read all her articles and blog posts at her website, beggarsdaughter.com. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Marie Miller with Glitter Gold from her newest album, Letterbox. Letterbox. 
That was Marie Miller with Glitter Gold from her newest album, Letterbox. We first met Marie three years ago when her single, You're Not Alone, rose to the top of the Christian adult contemporary charts. Marie is classified as a modern folk singer-songwriter, but as you've been hearing, she blends folk with pop and country and other styles of music. Marie now has a new album, Letterbox, that she describes as radically relational. It's about friendships, parents, a child, or romance. And she also says that it's about how we affect each other as people and that it's about freedom. Whatever it is, it is great music. And so we are very happy to welcome Marie Miller back to the program. Marie, welcome back to the Salt and Light Hour. Great to be here. So um, I don't think I've ever heard an album described exactly the way you describe yours. So maybe I should just ask you, what is the album about? The album is um, it's called Letterbox because when I was looking through the songs that we chose, I found that it almost was like um, direct letters to people in my life. The so things that I wanted to say to them, but I didn't because okay. I was afraid to or just felt like I couldn't in some way. And so I wrote a song about it. And huh. Then, so it now sort of is my, my collection of letters, so my letterbox, and I also am, am a little bit of a traditionalist, and I love to write letters and, and sort of have a philosophy about right. slower uh, communication and community and uh, physical things over all this digital stuff. So I thought it was mm-hmm. the perfect title. It is. So, but just to correct, so to confirm, so you, uh, were these actual letters or they felt to you that they were like letters? They were like letters. Yeah. 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 Now, I also read that you, uh, when you're writing music, sometimes you're looking for themes or searching because you love to read and you're looking through classic literature, for example. Was was there yes. a liter- literary influences for this album? Uh, yes, definitely. So there's, um, in basically every song, you'll find little secret um, quotes from books and things like that. There's a song called Story that is just jam-packed with literary references. I have Lord of the Rings in there, oh, yeah. and the Iliad, oh, wow. uh, Alice in Wonderland, hmm. Wuthering Heights. There's, yeah, it's just sort of a, um, uh, yeah, a ton. And I thought that was sort of my nerdy side coming out. But. No, that's good. <laughs> so would you say that that's typical of the way you generally write music? Definitely for this album, I I think in the past I've also done that, but in particular with this album. Now I have written um, you know, many songs that in my last EP I have a song called Unconscious, which is about the idea uh, in, uh, in Plato, the man in the cave. Right. So I, I try yeah. to... I've always tried to bring in my love of reading with my songwriting. Yeah, interesting. So would you then read something? Let, let's say you read that, that, that Plato myth or whatever that thought would have been. Would then, and then mm-hmm. would that sort of, would you write it out first as a poem and then set it to music or does it come to you musically? What's sort of the process normally for you? Well, I generally write the music and the words at the same time. Uh-huh. And then I go back and I edit. Right. right, of course. Uh, so, so yeah. So I, I, I really write, um, when people ask me that, I had to think about it the first time. Well, what mm-hmm. do I do? And I realized that I'm pretty much writing um, hand in hand yeah. together. So the lyrics and the, the, the music sort of come together. Um, 
would you say that there's anything different about this album for you? Um, and I'm thinking more um, that it seems to me that there's a bit of a different sound. It's maybe not as folksy or as country um, as some of your previous recordings. Uh, yes. So this album is definitely poppier, you could say, than yeah. the earlier recordings. And mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, I decided to go a little bit in that direction, just switch it up a bit. Um, the radio format that we're going for right. is, is um, pop radio. So yeah, it's kind of exciting to have, uh, and the shows have become more upbeat because of that. And I am excited about that, to have a little more energy for the performances as well. Yeah, I uh, I know, I know. I actually was watching the video for, uh, I think, Lost at Sea and the man, you're playing the mandolin. Um, but when mm-hmm. I was hearing it, I thought, oh, I really missed the mandolin. I'm gonna have to go hear it, hear it again. That I missed the the banjo and the and the mandolin. But maybe they're there, and I just have not paying attention from close enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, would you say that this is a Christian album? No. So this is really just a you know pop, secular, whatever. I joke and say pagan music, but I'm totally kidding. <laughs> um, no, it's uh, it's um, I have um, really. Um, tried to, though, bring in Christian themes yeah. um, in the music, whether it be a song about friendship or there's a song called Stone to Throw, which is about um, how every um, everything we do uh, in, in, in any way affects, we affect one another. Right. And, and so, it, you know, I say, um, no man's an island, no matter how far you swim, and the world's polluted by your tiny little sin. Mm-hmm. So it's um, you know, so really bringing my uh, Catholic faith into all the music, um, right. but I wouldn't say we wouldn't put it in the on iTunes. You know, Christian gospel right. um, genre. Right. So it'll be just pop. Is that is that something that's new for you, or that you're trying something new, or it just felt natural to kind of go in this direction for this particular project? Yes, it felt very natural, and I try to make the music speak for itself and not mm-hmm. decide. You know, before because I think. Once you say I'm this, and you know, then you're trying to write music that fits your own version of yourself. Oh, of course. But it, when you look back and you look at the music, you say, "Oh, this is where it's going to work the best." And but I've actually been working in pop music for about three years. Right. Um, and I still do many Catholic events, but I just am not doing the um, they call it CCM, you know, contemporary Christian right, music of course. events yeah. anymore. Yeah. What I call love, love songs to Jesus. Um, uh, exactly. um, mm-hmm. But it's good, and, and I think that there's a power to that because, as you say, I mean, who you are is who you are, and that's going to come through in your music and your lyrics. And and if you are Catholic or Christian or you're very much that's that's part of who you are, then that's going to come through anyway. Um, and maybe sometimes that's right. the best way to evangelize. And again, not that you're necessarily writing the music with an, a specific purpose to evangelize. I'm not sure if that's part of your, your goal or your mission. It, it definitely is. Uh, I started doing music full-time as a teenager and wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do with it. And then mm-hmm. I read John Paul II's <laughs> Letter to Artists. Yeah. Uh, and it talks about how beauty is a call to transcendence and it stirs in us the hidden nostalgia for God. And right. so ever since I read that, and being a JP2 generation kid as well, yeah. um, that has really, uh, that's really the only reason that right. I do this. I yeah. mean, I do it because I love it, and I, I find a lot of joy in it. Yeah. But if, if it wasn't, uh, beauty isn't used, I think, to to, um, to stir in our hearts mm-hmm. uh, that, that need for God, then 
you know, what's the point, I think. Mm-hmm, of course. And and you also do it because you're good at it. Um, mm-hmm. And you have a busy Thank summer. You. I was looking at your, uh, again, your, your, your dates. You have lots of dates uh, this summer. You're going to be in New York and Virginia, in Germany, Atlanta, Chicago. Yeah. Um, so our listeners can... Uh, Find out where you're going to be and see if you're going to be anywhere near them and hopefully they can come out and listen to you. Um, do you have any new recordings or any big projects coming down the pipes that we should know about? Well, with this release that was April 28th, which is so exciting. Yes. Yeah. So we've got, um, so I'm just in celebration mode for this one for now, mm-hmm. but I will definitely be releasing new videos. So I think... Yes. Um, uh, keep keep on the lookout for that. Yeah, we can post those. I actually really really like your videos. Um, um, oh, they're just very <laughs> simple, uh, but but artsy and and folksy, and and they're they're very well made, and it's a great way to to again to share the music. Um, so if people want to find out, well, they should come to our website because we we've we have them there, and of course they're on your website too, and uh, and they should yes. go there too. So Marie, I'm going to let you go, but thank you so much. I'm so excited when I heard you had this new album because it's been like three years. So. Uh, uh, it was a good I excuse know. to reach out to you and to play your music and to have you back on the program. Well, thank you so much for having me again. It's always awesome to be here. You're welcome. Thank you. You can learn more about Marie Miller and purchase her music. Best place to go is her website, mariemillermusic.com. And here now is Marie Miller with Lost at Sea from this newest album, Letterbox. paper boat on a raging sea Hope and hope would float on endlessly The sky can turn without a word from light to dark The storm will shake and waves will break on the bravest heart
You're listening to Marie Miller with Lost at Sea from her album Letterbox. And that concludes this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. You can learn all about Salt and Light and what we do at our website, saltandlighttv.org. And when you're there, why don't you visit our program page, saltandlighttv.org slash radio. If you have any questions or comments, or just to say hello, reach out to me through Facebook or Twitter. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. In a paper boat on a raging sea.